Hey, this is Brian. I'm putting up this episode with Rick Rubin today because Rick just released this book on creativity. I think that he was talking about a lot of stuff in this podcast from a couple years back that he's talking about now in the book uh, that he talked about in 60 Minutes. And I think it's really fun to hear him as he's starting to codify the way he wants to talk about these ideas publicly. And I loved this podcast. I think the world of Rick and I think you should check this out. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is, Rick, you were on the list I first made when I really? wanted people. Yeah, all, like seven years ago when I started the podcast. Wow. Uh, be, because uh, my guest today is Rick Rubin, uh, one of the great record producers of uh, my lifetime and uh, just a figure I've admired for really long time for the way he lives his creative life. And uh, yeah, Rick, uh, from the beginning, you know, you had so many of these moments I was interested in. I was so curious about certain aspects of the way you think through the world and feel through the world. So um, I'm really glad that we're getting to do this now. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. And yeah, when I heard a while ago, when you told me that you were listening occasionally to the podcast, I was really psyched about it, you know, and, and I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you. The Springsteen episode was very special. He's amazing. Did, did you find that day intense at all, getting ready for Bruce? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, I was going to say it was different than any other podcast I've done in the way he, usually it's very conversational. And with him, you ask him a question and he answers the question and he answers it in such a definitive and final way that it doesn't really leave room for more talking about that subject. So at about 20 minutes into it, I felt pretty unprepared because usually it's much more of a casual conversation and he has an ability to answer so specifically and so clearly and in depth and with a finality and a punctuation to it that um, it, it was just wild to experience, wild to feel it. Well, I was thinking as I was listening to that podcast, you know, you were asking these questions about how you wrote the songs and I, and I was thinking about the word intention. And as you're talking about this, it's like, Weirdly, both of you, and Malcolm was on that too. Um, and Malcolm's awesome, obviously your partner and stuff, but I was really keying into trying to understand if this is part of the way you meet an artist and try to figure out how to lock into what their intention is. And was there a similarity in, in that process for you? Um, it's hard to say. I would say usually it starts with just conversation and, and we talk and... Um, the artist usually tells you what they need. They, they don't always know they're telling you. But if you listen to everything they say, they, they tell you what they want and what they need in very clear terms. And then when, when we aim for that, they're always surprised. Like, how did you know that this is what we're... It's like, that's what you said. You know, you just didn't know that you said it. But if you listen to them, they, they know. How did you start to figure that out? Like, when did you start to figure that out? Don't know if I could answer that. I don't, I don't know if I know when it, when it became well, clear. A better way to answer that question is, 
did a oh, better way to ask the question is, did you, be, because different record producers and you know, I'm, I've, I've listened to you in other places. I know your career so well, you and I have gotten to interact over the years. It's odd, Rick, you know, we're not traditional friends, but we've known each other oddly a long time. <laughs> and when we see one another, it very, it feels like we're friends, right? So yes. it, it, there's this great kinship in a way. Uh, I would consider you a friend. Yes, so, as I so do you know. too, but I'm just not consider. trying not to be forward about it. Yes. But you know what I mean? You and I, don't we don't talk on the phone every day and we don't hang out all the time. Yes. yes, when I see you, I have an incredible well of warm feeling and all that stuff. And yes, dude, if you needed me, I'd be there and I'd trust if I called you. When I've ever called you and needed something, you've come through for me. But but this is the, the thing. Like Mutt Lang goes into his studio and, you know, replay, he's David Fincher. If I put it in the terms of my world. And he's David Fincher and he's going in there to get every note right. He's not having the guy play uh, an E minor. He's having him play each string of the E minor separately and tracking it to get what's in his head. Yes. You're Steven Soderbergh. You're trying to, it seems from the outside, you're trying to show up and in that moment, find the best thing. And what I'm wondering is, was it conscious? Or can you just talk a little bit about how you approach it in that way? I would say that when I started, I had more of a clear vision of what I was trying to do. And, um, and I think after making the first few albums that I made, I realized two things. One, there's a finite amount that I can bring. So if I, if I do it just all based on my ideas or my songwriting, it'll end up being a, a, a limited amount that I can create. Um, when I started working with other really talented people, it was amazing to, to see, I, I can tell you when it first start, started becoming clear to me is the way that it works is that there'll be a problem to solve. And usually I'll come up with a solution to the problem. And in the old days, right. And, you know, in the first few years of doing this, I would say, okay, here's the problem. Here's how we're going to fix it. Let's fix it. And we move yeah. on. Yeah. And now oh. I say, oh, here's the problem. What do we do? And nine times out of 10, the, the solution that the artist comes up with is better than the solution I had. And I always have a solution or usually have a solution in the back background just in case, but more often than not, in the room with the artist or band or, or through discussion, a better solution comes up than the one that was my knee jerk reaction. So before, when I started, I didn't know that. And I definitely learned it through the process of working with great people and, and also, um, being open to trying ideas, which is another key piece. If I were to share an idea with you, you wouldn't know what I'm, I don't know that I could verbalize an idea in a way that you could picture what I'm picturing. Now, I think I can, and you think you know what I mean, but it's never the case. Dude, that it's, gap is so hard. That gap, it's never to, trust, the case. to trust that gap, it's, it's, uh, it's like the thing at the beginning of the Salinger book when he talks about an amateur read, reader giving a lima, like being like a, a, ki a little kid giving a lima bean to his dining companion. And it's like, you're trying to share this lima bean that feels and tastes a certain way to you. And, and you're hoping they'll receive it in the same way. 
And it's so fucking scary when we're young artists, right? Yeah. And the the distance um, you have to, I find as an artist though, is to like trust that if they reject the lima bean, it doesn't feel like a rejection of your whole self. Yes, and it's that it's. I try to set ground rules in the beginning that we're going to try every idea because it instead of arguing about whether an idea works or not, let's just try the idea and see what we think. Because as I said, the the, the demonstration of it is always different than the fantasy of it. So to so to to argue over a method is pointless. None of us know the method that's going to work. Nobody knows. So why why operate in this theoretical area? Let's just mock up one version, mock up another version. Um, I do it all the time with with uh, we test all kinds of things when we work with engineers or when we work with mixers. We'll we'll have five different mixers mix you know mix the same song, and then when we listen to them, we don't know who's who did what. Everything's always blind testing because we don't want to bring any of our um, any of our baggage of what we think is going to work into the into the decision making. It's it's we want to go based on our ears. So if you tell me this is the one you liked yesterday, I don't want to know that. I want to always hear everything as it's the first time I'm ever hearing it and to try to uh, put myself in a state where I can experience it anew each time and then give honest feedback. What you just said is so much of the stuff I've always wanted to talk to you about. So I'm going to go slow with some of that because doesn't that kind of require a conscious, like so many of the rewards of success in show business are rewards that feed the ego in a way that's detrimental to continuing to do the work. Absolutely. And so doesn't it require a conscious deconstruction of the ego? Yes. To, to be good at it. Yes. And so what's that process like? Because it's so like, so when some when you're being deified, I, I find this whenever I, you know, uh, being around Scorsese, who I have the, the I've had the pleasure of being fired twice by him and I would get fired by him seven times in a row. I love him. I idolize him. I worship him. He could fire me anytime he wants. I mean it because that guy puts himself in a state while he's working where you never forget that he's Martin Scorsese, but he's in it. And I can, I know that you're in it. Uh, and what is the process like for you of that deconstructing of the ego? How do you get yourself back to the simple place? Well, I, it, I, I believe that I don't know anything. You know, I come in with the idea that I have no area of expertise. I don't know better than anyone else. I'm starting from, from a, a completely blank slate. And then I'm reacting in a natural way. If I were to if I were to share two different preparations of dishes of food with you and ask yeah. you to taste them both and say which one do you like better, it's not hard to say which one you like better. So I try to reduce everything down as much as possible to these choices of hmm, we made it this way, now we made it this way. Which one's better? And it's usually pretty obvious, and it's especially if you get it down to two choices. Um, yeah, yeah, but uh, but what I'll, I'll say also, you know, I learned to meditate when I was young, and and having a, a practice of that um, makes a big difference. 
um, s- any practices that I can do to um, stay grounded. And I think it also might be, it might just be, um, it may be the way we're born. You know, we can, we can, there are some of us who are, who get really like to fill ourselves with ourselves. And there are others of us who don't like to do that. And I, I don't like to do that. And was that always the case that you didn't like to do that? Did you never feel like you got lost in it at all? No, I I think the only thing that I liked was the performance of it. Like I would like if I ever uh, was forward in my presentation, (laughs) it was always for comedic purposes. It was always like performance art because I was I've always appreciated Monty Python, Steve Martin and um, so, so from a yeah, performance aspect, um, there's something funny about that character. Uh, but also, I guess when you recognize how funny it is, it's hard to ever really be like that. Yes. It's just but, uh, ridiculous. But, but, but by the same token, so this is the hard balancing act. Um, because I agree, I agree with every, everything you're saying about, and, it, and it's funny because there are other people like Fincher or Mutt who just are masters and they approach it in a totally different way. Absolutely. Right? That's no so right way. No, because you're approaching it from a very Eastern Buddhist sort of a way. And then there are people who are going to approach it from a very Catholic top-down sort of a way. And uh, I I really relate to your journey and the way the way that, that you do it. But but you're also able, you know, you tell this story when you were talking to Questlove about Al Teller. And, and um and I'll just encapsulate it so you don't have to retell it because I, I don't want to cover ground you've covered elsewhere. You realized that the record company that sort of sponsored your record company wasn't going to let you have enough control of things like the artwork and final mixes and what single was going to come out. And you got to a place where you had to leave. Now, that does take a lot of self-determination because it wasn't easy for you to extricate yourself. So how do those things, how do you balance knowing when it's, because saying like fuck you to someone like you didn't say fuck you but the way you know if i were writing characters it's like a fuck you kind of moment that takes a certain amount of like confidence but and and you want to make sure it's not your ego responding when someone says hey my art works better than yours for this so how do you think that stuff through and then check yourself how do you check yourself that it's not ego in that case it was more of a uh like taking care of your family if 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 someone was coming to attack your family, you you take on a different uh, valor <laughs> than you would normally have in life. Um, it's just the nature of you know we 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 protect the people around us in a certain way, and I felt like it was my responsibility to protect my artists, and I felt like my artists were being mistreated, and. I had to be. I had to stand up on their behalf. So it was a. Um, it was not a, a fuck you. It was more of a. We need to solve this problem, and if you can't solve this problem, I'm gonna have to find someone else who can solve this problem with me because we need to do the right thing. We're gonna do the right thing. And the, but the right thing was you trusting that your taste for how to mark. I want because. 
drilling down, because I know people listening to this, like this is a big problem that I think artists have. So, and I think you're so wise in this area, which is how do you know when the, when this external judgment on your work is correct or when it's wrong, right? And judging when it's your ego responding versus whether it's actually that you know. Yeah. How do you, and, and, and that's hard to tease out, right? Uh, whose cover is the right cover for the album? Of course you thought you knew and you were right in the end, but how do you tease that stuff out? That, as it relates to the particular story you're telling, that's not really what it was about. Okay. So right, in right. that case, it was about um, how our music was treated in the rest of the world. And the way it was treated in the rest of the world, it was it was essentially not being the equivalent of not being released in many places, and it was it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to our artists. So that that was uh, it was less of an art decision, more of a business decision in that case. Yes, um, I will always fight for the art that I believe in, not because I'm right, but because that's my job. It's like m my job is to I'm hired for a judgment of taste that's my it's my only job i'm not hired for my musical expertise i don't have any you know that's not what that's not really what my strength is my strength is i'm hired because i for whatever reason the things that i truly like other people have truly liked and, and I'm honest to that. Now, and at the end of the day, it, it doesn't always win. Like even, as it says, it doesn't necessarily win in a commercial way. And it doesn't necessarily win with the artist who's hired me to do this job. Like sometimes an artist will, I'll say, I think, it, I think we'll do it this way. And they'll say, I'm glad you think that, but we're going to do it this other way. It's like, it's okay. It's their names on the front of the, on the, front of the record. And I, I support that. My job is to give the honest assessment always. And then it's really up to the artist how much they're willing to embrace that or not. I'm, I have no interest in fighting over it. It's like it's, it's, it's still just my opinion, you know. And was that, was that always your head on it, though, that it was like just my, my opinion? Or because also part of, I think, what you have to do, because you're also wrestling with like the insecurities an artist might have. So... Like, uh, isn't part of, of what you have to do finding a way to keep presenting it to the artist in a manner that they can grab onto it? No. Okay, tell me. Explain. No, I, it, it's more... If there's a problem to be solved and I have a solution to the problem and the artist doesn't like my solution to the problem, it tells me we haven't gone far enough to find the, the best solution. It just means we're not there yet. It doesn't mean that I have to convince them. I never want to convince anyone of anything. I want to do the work to the point of where the artist says, wow, this is what, this is what, it, what I wanted. It just means we're not there yet. And is being like really direct without hurting feelings something you were able to do from the beginning or something you thought a lot about? I found that the more th there's nothing personal about about this and yes. what we're doing is again I'm being hired in my job is to share whatever information I can bring 
to an artist to help them be their best. And the more specific and clear I can be with any criticism that's in their best interest, it's not about them. It's about the work. It's like we, we have this, this, uh, we have this thing in front of us and we're talking about it. It's not their thing or my thing or anybody's thing. It's just this thing. And how, what's the way to make this thing the best thing that it could be? And, and yet, as you know, people's, I, I guess, because I know people who listen are trying to have these creative conversations. And I've been in these situations. I've been on both sides of it where, you know, you shouldn't get your feelings hurt, but like, it's so human to attach, I guess, this goes back to the attachment stuff, the Buddhist stuff, which is training ourselves to not attach to the things we create is really, I think for a lot of people hard, but it seems like for you, it's not hard anymore, if it ever was. Um, it's not hard. And, and I've had, I think I've had some great experiences with artists who've really taught me how to do it. Like working with Kanye West is a great example. He's so um, fluid in yeah. his decision-making and things change on such a regular basis and they can be great Oh, and sure. then they can change to something else and sure. then they can become great again and then they can change to something else and they can become great again. And it's amazing. It goes through all these things. So with working with him, I'm c completely patient. At first, I wasn't. When I first worked with him, it was terrifying because like seeing something great being <laughs> yeah, destroyed over right. and over again was terrifying. It must drive you crazy. Right, of course. Yeah. Uh, but once you realize that's just his process, that's fine. It's fine. You just have to learn... You know how it you works. Flow, you just people. have to kind of flow. You just have to learn to kind of flow through it somehow. Yeah, and ultimately, again, it is. Uh, there have been times when um, I've argued my case and lost with sure. an artist, and there have been times I've argued my case and won with an artist, and then in retrospect, I might have been wrong. It, I mean, it happens all the time. If you do this enough. There's a million per permutations of it. Of course. And there are a million permutations of where you try to take a more hands-off approach or a more hands-on approach to see which works. And then sometimes resentments can come from one or a great result can come from another. There are a few moments that have happened in your career. One of them, I think probably people haven't asked you about enough, which is people talk about the Johnny Cash records, but and they always want to talk about the songs you found, which I agree, incredible. But could, I've never heard, you might've talked about this, but I never heard you talk about the moment that Cash played you when the man comes around. And um, for me, I will just tell you as a listener, when I heard that song, it's one of the probably 40 experiences of my whole life of listening to music. Uh, I heard that song and um, everything in me changed. And uh, I understood he was talking about death. I understood he was talking about all the rap. I understand this was the last great song that Johnny Cash was ever gonna write. I knew it in the moment I, I heard it. It was like, that's, that, that is, he did it. He did it one last time. And it's his great, maybe his greatest song that he ever wrote, and it came at the very end. 
And it says everything. And if you haven't heard it as you're listening to this and you're not a country, it doesn't matter. Go, go fucking listen to that. Can you just talk about the obligation you feel in that? I can imagine that guy playing me that song and just the desire to capture it. I can imagine all my fucking um, Ashkenazi anxiety just overtaking me. So, and neurosis. So yeah. like, can you talk, and he obviously has none of that, none of that. So can, can you, <laughs> Could, could you just talk through how that happened, how he played you that song? And, and did you then know you were going to shape a record around it? Like, what was all that like? Well, I knew it was special when he presented it because he had so many pages of lyrics, which was not usually the case. He would normally have, you know, the lyrics for a song. And, yeah. he, and he, before I even heard the song, he explained, this is a song I've been working on for years. And... And he showed me revision after revision after revision and all of these different lyrics that he had written and thrown away. So I understood there was, for him, it had this incredible weight to it. Yes. Um, in terms of any anxiety about doing the right thing by it, I, I don't ever feel that because we, oh, we do that, we treat every single thing with the utmost regard always. There are no, because you never know. It's like through this process, like in the beginning of a process, there'll be a list of songs and some of them we'll think are the A songs and some of them will be the B songs, some will be the C songs. And then you go through the first phase of recording them and all of a sudden some of the ones on the A list aren't on the A list anymore. And sometimes some of the ones from the C list turn into A songs and you don't even know why. It's like it's, there's so much about this process that we don't understand how it works, why it works. There are songs that, that have been my favorite songs that end up not getting on an album. And there have been songs that I, when I first hear them, I think very little of that turn into the best songs on the album. It, so many things happen. So many things have to go right in the long run. So, so in some ways, by treating any song with extra care, you'd be doing it a disservice because then the anxiety that you're talking about is more likely to creep in. So if you treat everything exactly the same, I never, it, many artists talk about, well, you know, this is the single. So let's, you know, we got to focus on the single. Yes. It's like, I never want to know what a single is going to be until an album's done. Once the whole album's done and we finished everything, then start having those conversations because we don't want to be thinking about any song in a special way. We want to think about all of them being the best that they could be. Well, what you're talking about there is, this is another thing I'd written down to ask you about. You're talking about the discipline to be present, to be where your feet are as the boot, as like, you know, to be right where your feet are, as the Buddhists might say, right? But that's fucking hard for people, Rick, to be where their feet are. Um, I met, I, you know, I meditate twice a day too, and it really helps. But, but I think I've had some moments where I'm standing on a set and suddenly I do realize the magic is happening right now. We have, you know, I, we have to get it. And this, like the camera better do the right thing because what this actor's doing is the magic. This is it. Now we could go get something really close to that again. I like, but, but I'm watching it from the, and I'm like, oh fuck, this is the thing. And then honestly, when I get that feeling, it doesn't happen all the time. When that thing happens, I will say that does track through to then when it's up on the screen often. Like that, 
feeling obtains, right? So when you hear when the man comes around, do, do, your, do you get tingly? Does something happen as you're making that record where you're like, oh, this is part of history? Or do you discipline yourself not to fucking think about it? I, I don't think about it at all. And the amazing, but, but there's two pieces to what you just said, which part of it is you get it as the performance is happening and you feel that magic and that you get anxiety, like make sure the camera's working. That's real, but that's not, that's a different feeling. That's not being prepared. That's more, we're witnessing yes. something happening. Something's happening in this moment. And it's more of a sense of we don't want anything to jinx it. We we hope yes. that we hope that it can carry on enough to get through an entire performance because we know this is not something we can just call up. But that's different than not being prepared. That's a very different thing. It's like in the moment that it's happening, yeah. there's definitely a, a reverential feeling of awe. That's great. But I, That's but right. You have I that. Never, absolutely. But I never have that as it relates to the material. I have it as it relates to the moment it's the performance is happening. Because up until that time, I don't know that it's ever going to do that. I don't know that. Yeah, you can't know. I get that. Can't know. I can't. I get that. Though, the uh, I, did, did Cash play you that song on the acoustic guitar or had he done a demo and played you the demo? Do you remember? Acoustic guitar. So you're sitting there with him and you're just trying to be present in the moment. And when he does play it for you, do you right away say, well, that's one we're going to record? Do you go record it that day? Can't remember. Can't she, remember if we recorded it that day. And uh, and when you're doing those things like the Cash albums, at, and by the time you got to the third one, it was clear and the fourth one... It, it was clear you were right. Your instinct was right and it mattered. Are you consciously not thinking about anything outside of what's happening when you're there? Like, are you able to just be there and, and not kind of aware that you're working with Johnny Cash? Yes, I'm able to just be there. I'm happy to be there. And it's amazing because being in his presence was always... Um, I always learned something. He was just really smart, knew a tremendous amount about music, knew a tremendous amount about uh, philosophy and religion and history. So, and he wasn't forthcoming with his knowledge, so you had to draw him out. He was just a really uh, shy, reserved guy, and both of us pretty shy. So uh, unless, unless there was a reason to draw him out about something, it, there'd be a lot of quiet for both of us because it's our nature. And you were comfortable in that. That was good Absolutely. Absolutely. Can, can it be, can this sort of uh, approach that you have, do you think, is it, is it teachable? Like, have you ever been able to pass it on to anyone who's like come into your world as either an engineer or someone you wanted to train as a producer? Do, do you think that it's just congenital, just kind of the way you were born? Or can, can people like learn to take this approach? I think a, a lot of the methods that have revealed themselves over the course of me doing this for a long time um, 
are definitely usable by other people. And I've been trying to collect them all. And I'm working on a, a book about good. It's really about the creative process, not about music at all. I want that book a, desperately. Yeah. Uh, no, that's so you are you're codifying that stuff and, and, and you want to try to be able to present it to us. Absolutely. And and it, it's taken a long time because so much of it comes to me instinctually and stopping to analyze probably for the last six years. Anytime I'm working on a project and something comes up and a solution reveals itself in the studio, I try to think back it's like okay i see how that works in this case but what's the principle at work here and tr try to figure out the principles and um yeah keep, I, keep I, note of I, those i think so much about trying to give people permission you know like it was so hard for me to find a way to give myself permission to do this when i was 30. and uh, so i'm also writing a, a book it got announced a little while ago called the moment about this stuff and about Beautiful really about the beginning of the creative process, not as much about sort of, but really about sort of how, how you just get yourself to live the creative life and trust it, right? Um, and so much of what a producer has to do is create an environment to give people the permission to do their best work. And do you, um, in the beginning of being with somebody, are you trying to figure that out about them, what they need in a way a coach might uh, about players on the team? Absolutely. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's not so, I'm trying to feel it more than figure it out. It's, it's less intellectual and more uh, an emotional resonance that we're looking for. Yes, I'm thinking about that moment. It's not a moment of, but I'm thinking about that moment Springsteen talks about, you know, where Landau said to him, I'm born in the USA. Look, dude, you don't have a fucking single. And then Bruce somehow went home and wrote Dancing in the Dark. And that seems so different from the approach that you might take. And uh, like knowing who to say that to and who you have to say, we're going to be great. Let's just chill out. It seemed, you just kind of feel your way through that stuff, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm I would never um, I would never say to anyone I don't think we have a single. It's like I, I don't think I don't think in those terms. Yeah, why why don't you think in those terms? I, I just think in terms of if we're creating a compelling body of work that excites me, it's going to excite someone else. I, so I I think all those other there are so many bad habits that lead to bad work being made of I know just overthinking and aiming for something small <laughs> but, instead but of raising, aiming for something but you, you know big. what's so hard though that you seem to do incredibly well man because obviously often you're making you've made the best record with people and it seems to me that you have the ability to raise the standard to encourage the person to raise their standards while lowering the pressure. Yes. And that seems to me a very difficult thing to do. Well, I think they go, I think that they're in complete harmony because the pressure doesn't make it better. So it's like, it, it's counterproductive to put pressure on it. It's I know, the opposite. but most people put pressure. I mean, you know that most people I like, uh, most people uh, only are thinking about, I, I think part of it has to do with most people are constantly worried about how every situation is going to reflect on them. 
You know what I mean? And and if you're constantly worried about how it's going to reflect on you, then the session not going well is a personal disaster for you. But if you can be outer directed, it's not. But most people have a hard time with that in show business, especially, it seems like. Yeah, I never think that it has anything to do with me, ever. I was thinking about Woody Guthrie, and you know, Dylan tells that great thing about how Woody would try to... Dylan tells a great thing about how Woody would try to demystify himself, take his mystique away. You know, he would let you see at the end that he was pissing on himself. So he would ask you to clean the bedpan so that you would see he was just a fucking guy, right? Dylan, on the other hand, uses the mystique to, he does the opposite, right? He uses the mystique. Now, you know that you have a huge mystique that you can use or not use because of who you are, everything you've accomplished. But it does seem that you try to set up this environment to win and then and then sort of try to say things like, well, it's not that I know anything. On the other hand, Rick, you do also say, uh, I'm hired for my taste. That seems a fine line to walk in a way. Well, I, I, believe, I believe in my taste, ah, but I don't believe that it's anyone else's uh, obligation to follow it. That's, that's up to them. You know, it's my, it's my obligation to share it with them. But that's it. That's where it ends. As long as I've, as long as I've shared my opinion, I've, yes. I've, I'm good. And, and, I, and I don't know that I'm right. That's another big part of it is I don't know that I'm right. I, I don't, that's not, and there, I don't even know that there is a right in this. It's like in this whole thing, it's like who knows if there's anything that's right or wrong. It's like all it is is we're making art. Some people like it. Some people don't. And it's fine. But that requires you to have the ability to turn off the pressure from the outside. Yes. Which it seems to me you were able to do even before you were successful. Yes. How, how did you know to do that? I don't know. I don't know how I knew that, but I did know that. And I always, I always did that and would always, because I believed in whatever the thing is that we're making. And I believe that other people might not understand it. And that's, and I was always okay with them not understanding it. But if they don't understand it, they can't control it. Oh, that's so key. Right. If you, if I don't get that you actually get this, thing, if you, if you're um, inside the tent, if you understand what we're yes. after, then yes. please give me feedback and let's achieve yes. it together. Yes. But if you're someone who doesn't know why Slayer matters, don't yes. give me an opinion on the mix. Don't tell me the vocals should be louder. Yes. If you don't understand what Tom Araya is doing. Yes. That's fair. But you knew that before, before, you knew that kind of at the beginning because of the work, the area. Well, I, always, cause I always liked weird things. You know, I always liked things that most people didn't like. Yeah. So I, I'm an expert on things that people don't like. <laughs> well, how do you stoke that though? I was reading, I don't know, did you ever read the book um, that El Elia Kazan wrote about directing? Never like did. it's a, oh, I'll send it to you. I'm going to send okay. it to you. It's incredible. Okay. He has this book, like just basically all about directing. And, and, you know, he was like one of the, although his legacy's tarnished because of the um, McCarthy shit, you know, he's one of the greatest directors who ever lived. But his amazing, like 50 page chapter and everything a director's supposed to know. And, you know, dance, opera, fashion, architecture. So what do you do to continue to, so that your taste doesn't calcify 
And so that you continue to expand or refine or uh, 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 make your prism sharper. Like, what do you do? I've always been voraciously interested in, I'll say particularly counterculture. So I, it's just where my tastes run. I'm interested, I'm curious, I'm always reading, I'm always watching, I'm always listening. And um, I'm, I'm just interested. So do you still, uh, it's funny when, when Cobb was on your podcast and I love that guy as a producer and he's like, can I ask you for a hobby? And you go to your, to read. And he said, no, but so the only times I've ever heard you to have a real pause of like, you don't, it was like, it seemed like for a second you were <laughs> trying to figure out like, wait, what do you mean, Dave? You're a great producer. How do you know? But so you're consciously still reading, listening to stuff, looking at art as like a part of, um, it's an important part of your day each day. Absolutely, it's, it's all I do. But but that but not because it's my job. It's like my job is my job because the person that I am loves to do those things. Oh, that's so important. Yeah, say more about that, please. That's so important. It, it just I I'm I I try to be as true to my interests as possible. I don't I don't listen to music to find out what's going on. I listen to music because I like music. I, I listen to podcasts because I like learning things. Yes. You know, I listen to books on tape because sometimes my eyes hurt when I read too much. Yes. Um, yes. All this. I, I relate so heavy. I When I figured out at a certain point that following my curiosity could actually, I, all I wanted to do was follow things I was curious about. So that's it. It, it. And if I'm curious enough and I follow it, sometimes it's a dead end. That's fine. I got something out of it. And then sometimes it leads to this amazing creative discovery. Like you said, that other people may like, but it doesn't matter if it, if it, I if like it, it, if it vibes me out for a year of my life thinking about something and creating about it, I'm fucking fine because that's why I, I live for that. That's it. So that's what you're doing too, all the time. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And and that's why for you it's easy to listen to something or be pitched something, and know, hey, I want to do this or I don't because you're living it all the time. You're in the yes. flow. Of it yes, all and sometimes it sometimes like it, it depends if it has to do with music. It, it might also be a case of I feel like I could like if I like the artist and I feel like I could help them be better at what they're doing, even if it's not my taste, I might do that because I like them and I know and I can see. Again, usually they tell me without knowing it what they need. And I can support them in that. I might do that. And and uh, and the, I also wanted to ask you in the same way about Johnny Cash. About nine, I wanted to ask you about ninety nine problems. So that's another moment when because everyone's described to me the way Jay works. So you didn't hear that lyric until the lyric went down in front of you because nobody does, right? No. It and so not, you, it starts with music first. And then he just sits in the back of the room and he says, play it again, play it again, play it again. And he's kind of humming. With no title at that no. point. No, no, no. So so you've sat in some of the greatest, I mean, you sat there when, I mean, you were part of King of Rock and you were part of all that stuff. But when you're sitting there and that guy finally gets behind the thing and starts telling that fucking story, what's going on inside? Is that a moment where you're like looking at the engineer, like you better be getting this flow down? Like what's happening? What's, what's really interesting, what, I, what was particularly interesting to me was that he, 
he would have these complicated verses that he would do. He wouldn't write anything down. It would just be made up in his head and he would do it. And each time he would do it, it would be like a soloist doing a variation on the same solo, but with different emphasis. So it's not like, whereas most other MCs I've worked with, they have a very specific pattern of what they're doing, and they and you could perform it as many times as you want. It you mean the meter, the, the meter's locked in ahead of time in a way. Very much so. Whereas with Jay, it's locked in to some degree, but it's much more improvisational in the way he delivers it and what's emphasized and where the where the rhythm uh, or where the accents are changes, and it it gives it a different flavor each time and fascinating to see he's the only the only artist i've seen do that well yeah that's an ins- i mean yeah i mean he's the you know maybe the greatest of all time like you know i mean so in that moment like with the cash thing i understand that you're not thinking about any of the sort of commercial ramifications do you have the sense as he's going into that flow and telling that story first of all i imagine uh you're allowing yourself to be moved by this, like you're being a professional recording and working. But as he's telling that story, are you incredibly moved in in the moment by it? Like, is it, are you blown away when that's happening? Or are you fully in a professional head where you're like, well, let's make sure the bass is right. I'm trying to think of that particular one because sometimes, like more often than not, it's professional, but there are some times when you just can't believe what, what just happened. Yes, because um, I have it, had a feeling every time I listen to 99, in that record in particular, literally every single time I listen to it, I am just like my jaw. I don't, you know, that track and when you did and Story of OJ, like whenever I hear those two Jay-Z songs, for some reason, I kind of like can't fathom that somebody, it's one of like Bob Dylan. I can't understand it. Like it's so beyond what's possible to me. And I can't, you know, being in the studio, I just can imagine it must have been crazy. Uh, it, it's crazy all the time. This, this it's like it, it's always crazy. Incredible, like w- when you're in the room and something incredible is being made, and I've been lucky enough to be in that room. It's thrilling all the time, whether it ends up being you know something that you're listening back to years later and loving or not. Yes, just that feeling of seeing something go from pretty good to really good that like blossoming moment is thrilling and the whole reason that that we do this it's like just to have that experience of seeing something come to life like having something not there before and all of a sudden it's there and you can't believe it and you know no one involved has anything to do with it being as good as it is we all are doing our best for it to, we're all doing all that we can do, but we can't make that happen. We can't, no one can make that happen. It's beyond us. It truly is, right. It's this whole sort of, and yet, by dint of the fact that you're the producer of the session, it's kind of up to you to say, we got it, let's go home. Yes, yes, and, and, and to protect it. It's like to recognize that it happened and let's hope it doesn't get screwed up now. Right, so like mix it, like then making yeah. sure the mix is right. And then 
I don't know if you were involved in Mark Romanek directing the video, but like in, in terms of just like, we have to carry this. Cause then when you finish the record, at some point you do recognize, okay, we have this record that's gonna take Jay from being a huge superstar to just like the biggest one who we, ever lived. You never know that. You we, truly don't correct. know it. No, I can remember, okay. The record company that I founded, Def Jam, yes. which I no longer had anything to do with at the time that I made that record, I remember playing it for the president of Def Jam, the label I founded, and him saying, that'll never be a single. Oh, come on. I swear to you. Those are my favorite stories. That's my favorite rock and roll story all the time. I swear to you, of course. Like It's like it's cool, but that's not what's going on now. Okay. That'll never be a single. It's like, great, cool. No, but, okay, so I don't, you didn't really think to yourself, cool, though. Did I you? did, because I have no, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I know I like it, but I don't know the what it's going to, uh, so I really I want don't people know. to understand this, though. This is a crucial, I'll say, Rick, this is a crucial, people get so devastated by things like that. And there are a couple of parts of what you're saying that are just are really important and helpful, I think, to people. Really helpful. One, your posture of not going in there so attached to it that you're like, this is the fucking single. Like you're kind of faith that the best shit will win out. In the end, what's supposed to happen will happen. Once you've done the best you can to make it, that's um, great. But also the gatekeepers don't, they don't know all the time. So like the president of Def Jam wasn't an idiot. Uh, and he just didn't in that moment, who knows what was in his head. Like I know I still would get so angry in that moment or uh, feel like the world was unjust. And the truth is that all you can do is the work and be, and then you can advocate, but that's the best you can do, right? Well, I always, I always think, well, maybe they're right. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I can say what I, what I, I can say what I think, but that's it. It's like, and then whatever happens, happens. And then you don't get, in, uh, you didn't want to call him up when that 99 problems became, you know, one of the very signature tracks and go like, Hey, I, I think I was right on that one. Never thought Doesn't about matter. it again. I don't, I don't want to be right. I have no interest in being right. That's a giant separator. Everybody in America wants to be right. They just, I do So how does that tie in with ambition though? Like obviously, or maybe it's not obvious. Uh, it seems to me you, you had ambition because of, you know, I know the story, you're going to be a lawyer, all that stuff, but uh, were you ever competitive or ambitious in the traditional ways? Meaning, not was competitive, not, not com competitive. because no, because I'm not competing with anybody. It's like, I want to make the best thing I can make. That's all. That's all I can do. I want to make something. I want it to be the best it could be to compete means I want to be better than someone else's. I don't care about being better than someone else ever. I want to just do my thing to the best of my ability. That's it. But that's a true separating thing. And I, again, it's important. Like there was a thing I saw today where um, there were a bunch, there was a huge meme going around where some women had collected on dating apps. There's a question that says, uh, what are you competitive about to dudes? And basically everybody says everything like in that answer. And these women were posting like hundreds of guys who were saying I'm competitive about everything. And it's such a crushing thing, right? And it's so much free, more freeing to not be competitive. Absolutely. In a way. Yeah. But show, show business people are competitive. Like uh, at the Grammys, a lot of people are rooting against people instead of just rooting for people. And, and, 
And the business can be corrosive in that way. Did you not find that? Or did you just build a group of people around you who weren't like that? I just stay away from everything like that. I'm not interested in any of those things. Just I'm interested in great art. That's it. It's like, and, and, and great art doesn't compete with other great art. It's like, it's either great or it's not for you and it's all good. If someone would have said to you, you could, I'm just going to completely switch gears because you don't have that much more time and I have a few things I really want to ask you. If you, there are a couple of artists I've always wondered, they're dead, most of them are dead, so you don't have to worry about it, but I've always wondered what kind of record you would have made with them. And Sinatra is one. Like, what would you have done? Did you ever try to get Frank in a studio? Never did. And what would you have, would you, what would you have done if, if you I, had I the don't know. I, I rarely, I rarely know in advance. It usually comes from meeting the artist that the, inspiration comes and sometimes it's what they want to do and sometimes it's from talking to them if they don't know what they want to do they'll give me clues because it, it really wants to come from them it really wants to come from them have you um did you are you a sinatra guy do you like what he did obsessed right yeah me i mean what's your favorite sinatra record uh sinatra to- joe sinatra joe beam I'm a I'm a live at the sands person. There's something about live at the sands Fantastic. that just Fantastic. the way that nothing ever captures something like that. Just the it's way Fantastic. that that's captured for me is and the and the, the the talking in between songs is just unbelievable. <laughs> it's outrid the banter. I mean, and, you know, we probably wouldn't have liked those guys at all. But as human, you know, it, but hearing it as a moment in time is just one of the greatest things ever. And uh, have you ever thought about working with Neil Young and Crazy Horse? Uh, I've done I've done sessions with Neil and um, and I love Neil. But you never put anything out. We've or? never put anything out. And did you have an idea for him? Like, would you make a Crazy Horse record? Absolutely, I would make a Crazy Horse record in a minute. I think that might be the thing that I want you to do. The mo- like, I was thinking about it today, and I was like, if I could, if I could figure out a record Rick could do, you with Neil and Crazy Horse, with your sort of like whatever you would want to do with them, I think would be, if I could just put that out into the, I just want to put that into the air. I think, I think Neil has his way of doing things. And I don't know that I would have any impact whatsoever. I think Neil likes doing what he likes to do. I mean, it's fine. He's one of the greatest who ever picked up a a guitar, but, um, but it would still be fun. So you did do tracks with them. What happened when you did tracks with them? Um, there was a window where he, do you remember there was a time when he hurt his finger and he couldn't play guitar? Yeah. He, he like cut off a piece of his finger and we had a session booked and then we did the session anyway and he ended up playing harmonica through his guitar rig and um, and he was able to play piano. We did some other things, but but it, it was never like fully I got realized. Yeah. How do you, uh, I guess I'll just. Fun though. One or, I'm sure it was amazing. One or two more things and then I'll let you go. Um, I'm happy to talk as long as, okay, long good, as you want. I'm, good. I, okay, great. Good. Thank you for taking the pressure off. Um, but still, I like being respectful of people's time. And mm-hmm. and I think constraints are decent. Um, do you have a, at all a challenge in uh, in being vulnerable? Like as we get older, I've been thinking a lot as we all do in our 50s about time and death and all that stuff. Uh are you able to put yourself in a place where you're willing to be really vulnerable 
to the emotions that the music brings out, even though it's like, as you get older, it's harder to recover sometimes. Uh, and I, you're on the front lines of it so much. I, I just wonder how you think about that. Uh, I like the, I like that feeling. You know, I like when I like when music can make me cry. I like uh, it, it doesn't feel like there's any downside to that. You like being cracked open still. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Me I don't too. Like it. I don't like it in uh I don't like being manipulated into it through like a film. Like like there I don't like I don't watch movies that make me feel bad. But I like but I like a moment that can do that. You know, a feeling. I don't I don't want to be uh manipulated into that feeling. Well, sure, it's like listening to your Neil Diamond record, the first one. Uh, nothing on it is sentimental and yet the effect of it is to make you, to crack you open. I mean, I remember where I was when I put that album on and it's, it's bone dry, but the effect that it has is to crush you. And I'm sure sitting there for you was emotional as hell. Absolutely. There's a song, um, on another album that comes to mind when we talk about this, because interestingly, uh, Judd filmed it which was um, the, the Avett Brothers, there's a song called No Hard Feelings. Yeah. And he happened to capture the take when it happened. And, um, and I remember almost being put in an altered state from the performance, hearing the performance. And, and, and I didn't know this until I saw the movie that he made because then the band like kind of, there, there was some tension in the band after that moment. I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's worth seeing if you haven't seen it. But they do the song and it's heavy. It's like just this heavy, you can't, you can't believe what just happened. And I walk in and I say, okay, that was great. What are we going to do next? Like just like completely, we got work to do. And then they're like, oh, we're just going to take a little time to go outside. And they go outside and it shows them sort of like almost, it seems like they're pissed off <laughs> that, uh, that I'm treating it like business as usual. Yeah. And uh, I don't even know yeah. if that's true. It's like that. That's yeah, what I took but that's what you're, Yeah, I but I understand. But, but that's what your head was like. You were like, let's. It's like, yeah, I was, my mind was blown and now we got to work. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, that's the whole reason we're here was for that to happen. Yes. Let's do more of that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for, for me, when those big emotional moments happen, like, and I agree with you, I don't like being manipulated though. Like when I see Fred McDormand and Almost Famous point to that album and the people high and I cry, that, I love that kind of a moment of uh, cathartic release works for me. But to do this kind of work with these artists you work with, it, it does feel like you have to stay open, really open emotionally. Absolutely. That's, that's, all it, that's all there is. It's like all there is. And that goes for even, you know, even Slayer as well. It's like to be able to feel the energy, it's, it can be, it could be sadness. It could be anger. It could be power. It could be any of these different feelings, but we're dealing in this energetic world and um, 
feeling it is the whole name of the game. Yeah. And keeping yourself willing to feel it is sort of like what keeps people from becoming hacks in a way, right? Like if you can continue to be alive to it, assuming you weren't a hack to begin, not you, obviously are not, yeah. I've never been a, <laughs> but I'm saying if one was not a hack to begin with, yes, you know, what happens over time to people is I think part of it is um, it's painful to be emotionally vulnerable for artists sometimes. And you can see that it's easier to just let your craft do all the work for you. But when your craft is doing all the work, it's kind of like your point of view isn't in, in play because your heart's not in play. And then you're just, then all you're using is your like intellect and, and then the thing's not alive anymore. Yeah, it, 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 this is not an intellectual job. Doesn't intellect come into it in when you're talking to somebody about their lyrics or when you're talking about the sort of overall approach to a record or it's all just feeling your way to it? You feel your way through and then once you feel something, the intellect might come in to try to explain why it is we're feeling what we're feeling, but it's only ever after the fact. It's like the, the magic doesn't happen in the head. The magic happens in the heart always. And it, it happens in the heart and then we have to figure out why it happened. We don't even have to. Often we do, often we can't. But when we try, that's when the intellect gets involved. It's like the afterthought to, and to maybe try to learn from it, to help it be useful in the future, that might be intellectual. But, but the actual magic is not intellectual. It's faster than the intellect. It's much more primal. It's much more immediate. It's not to be figured out. It's not to be figured out is so important because sometimes people try, all of us, to explain stuff away when it does happen or we feel like we have to put a name on it. And, and the urge to put a name on it, you're so right, can destroy it in a way. It always diminishes it. It's like, you yes, can't, it's it, a better way to say it. Yep. Yeah, it diminishes it. It's not, that's not what it is. Labels, as a rule, labels diminish things. Yeah, it's amazing too, because I go back to the Springsteen thing, which I would encourage people to listen to, because somehow Bruce, it's like all these different levels of evolution. And somehow Bruce has gone through this stage we're talking about. And he's all the way at the stage where he can name it. He can intellectually name it. Be, be, but he's done it by coming through all the way to the other side from a guy who had to so play with his emotions. When you watch those Zimni documentaries in the middle period, all he could do was feel his way through it. And he did that for so long that now he can say, I'm going to make an album about this emotion. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to find, and, and it still has everything in it. It's the opposite of a hack. It's complete emotional work. And yet it's like got all this craft in it. Blows me. I mean, it's amazing, right? Don't you think the new record? Yeah, the, the yeah. best the best is the combination. It's like when when you can add craft to that raw emotion, that's where the, the masterworks come. That's I mean, the Beatles. That's, you know, that's I mean, the, the last the Yeah, well, I would say, I would say, and this we can end here, which is for me, the thing I've realized in the last few years is the best artist who did this. For me, the, the music that has lived the most during pandemic for me is Petty. Petty to me was the whole game. And I yes. don't think I fully got it while he was, I mean, I was a huge family, he was alive. 
But when I hear those records, it's like every fucking thing you're talking about is in those records you made with Tom Petty. And what, whatever he and Mike, and I had a long talk with Mike on the podcast and he played me how he came up with a bunch of riffs and, um, I haven't listened to yours with him yet, but I'm going to, I just saw it today that it was up recently. Um, and I love his record actually. I think he, he and George did a great job on that record. I think it's so good. He's amazing. He's amazing, but amazing. But what do you think it was that Tom had that uh, allowed for, for, for him to be this perfect combination of this stuff? Like, what did you feel was your job in with Tom Petty, with translating his thing? Like, what, what did you figure out about that, that whole thing? See if I can answer this. Yeah, take your time. We're good. I like silence. I think I have to talk to the time that I met him because it's it's it plays into how this works, which is he had just come off making these two great albums with Jeff Lynne. Yeah. One of which was the one that got me into Tom Petty in the first place. So really funny. as a yeah. fan, the, the Full Moon Fever album, which I loved and listened to a million times. Um and I loved it in spite of the fact that it was very different than the kind of music that, that I work on. So he had an, a, a, a songwriting and craft, crafting ability that was as good as anyone has, who has ever made music. Um, and because he had just made these records with Jeff, which were very uh, perfect, like you described Mutt Lang earlier, every note played, every drum played individually, no sense of performance, more sense of perfection. Yeah, ornament. they were ornamental in a way too, yeah. My instinct was, you know, I came into music really almost as a documentarian of music. That's really how I started. I started because I went out to clubs and I heard this new when hip hop was starting. I felt this energy in the clubs. The records that were coming out, hip hop records did not reflect that energy at all. They were made by right. people who didn't understand the music. So I set out to just document what the energy was that I felt in the club. And it's always been to some degree, this sense of documenting what already is, um, not trying to change it into something else. So because Tom had just worked with Jeff and the albums were so meticulously done, yes. The goal was just to do it in a much more casual, relaxed way, which was a tremendous amount of work. Like the the, <laughs> the the Wildflowers album sounds like it was recorded in you know in a weekend, and it took us two and a half years to make it sound that casual. Um, it was really hard to do, but it's hard to do not because we were going for perfection, because it, it was it's like hyper reality. So reality would be. A performance on any given night hyper reality would be the best performance on the best night if you happen to catch the best performance on the best night you can't make that happen it takes time to do the work until you get to the point of where it feels like it's just this off-handed thing that just came out but it's the off-handed thing that came out on the right night 
just right. Well, Wildflowers, when I just did my Spotify, they shed you that year-end wraparound. Wildflowers was my number one most listened to song of the year. So all those years later, that was the song, and that, and then one, you, then that and Southern Accents, those two songs. But Wildflowers was the number one most listened to song for me this year. And so you capture, I mean, that's what happened, right? You got a thing that lasted that, um, that long. So over two and a half years, sorry, I'm just going to stay with this. Over the two and a half years, do you, and I know that's not the only thing you're working on for two and a half, or uh, that wasn't the only thing you worked on for that two and a half years, no. was it? No. Uh, do you get dejected as that's going on? How do you keep the um, how do you keep everyone buoyant when that's happening and it's taking that long? We I don't think any of us thought about it that way at all. I think all of us thought about it as this might go on forever and we were all cool. It's like it wasn't like we were we weren't working to finish it. We were working to work. We were we were making music because it's what we liked doing and it was fun every day. Some days would be slower than others. But getting together and making each other laugh and working on a song and seeing them develop and, you know, crossing things off the big whiteboard of all the, you know, 30-something songs we were working on and seeing each one kind of nudging further along. And Well, it's great. That album has lived and lived. And people, there's a, there are many versions of the Wildflowers album you can go find. There's lots of tracks that exist that weren't on the album that people can get. Um, but it's amazing. Rick, thank you so much, man. And, and uh your presence in the, you know, this is the thing, your presence in the world means a lot to a lot of people in ways that you might not always know. And uh, the, the music and your example, and as I said to you in text the other day, like every time I spend time with you, I come away uh, just feeling a little more centered and uh, I'm really grateful to have you in my life. So thank you for this. Meeting. Thank you so much. All right, be well. <laughs>